and welcome to Economics in 10 with Pete and Gav. Yes, it's that time of year again. It's a Christmas special. This Yay. is our third Christmas special. I'm sure there'll be diminishing marginal returns, but <laughs> we are going to try our best to raise the spirits on what is kind of another gloomy year, isn't it, Pete? Is it? Isn't it? Oh, you know, Christmas isn't a gloomy time. No, it's the only whole, year. The whole of the year. Yeah, yeah. So the we're year. trying to end yeah. it on a good note. Yeah. yeah. Having yeah. said that, I've looked at the ten questions. We might bring it down a little bit. <laughs> but anyway, not at all. Not yeah. at all. Now we're going to go straight in. Obviously, uh, Christmas is about kind of purchasing things. It can be. Well, we- there is a spiritual element. and Which we're going to get on to. Yeah. But as teachers, you've taught business studies, haven't you? I have taught business the studies. The big moment in the year is when the John Lewis advert gets announced. <laughs> yeah, and released. <laughs> and that's like, and like, it's kind of like, the you know, you put it on in the classroom and you'll gather around and turn the lights down low. Do get you the do popcorn. That? Yeah, yeah, get the popcorn out. <laughs> you know, waste a few minutes. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then you stick it on and you go, God, what do you think of that? Yeah. And then you think about the, the knock-on implications. Now, so in a roundabout first, way. Yeah, our first question is, does Christmas advertising work? And how can we relate that to game theory at Christmas, Pete? Yeah, there are enormous sums of money spent on advertising yeah. at Christmas. And... Uh, one could argue that, well, there's two ways of looking at it. For some uh, companies, certainly, I think last year Aldi, for example, spent enormous sums on advertising. Uh, I think only Tesco and Asda of the big supermarket chains spent more. Really? Wow. Yeah. But for Aldi, certainly very successful. You know, they had a very good Christmas, as the retailers like to say. Right. Was that the one with the carrots? Yeah, do you know what? They've brought out a range of sort of... There's some sort of toy carrot one can buy. But I think they've got a few little buddies now as well. Yeah, now what's interesting about that is because you obviously have a time lag with regards to charity shopping. Mm. And I noticed carrots starting to appear around probably about September time. Right. People suddenly go, why have we got a a carrot here? And then they'll get rid. And now... If you're a, a, a wise buyer, you could probably nip into the charity shops, yeah. buy your Audi carrot. And in 20 or 30 years' time, there'll be some nostalgia fest. <laughs> yeah. By the way, we should, exp- <laughs> we should explain this to international listeners. Aldi is a supermarket chain, a budget supermarket yeah. chain in the UK. and uh, German they, origin. German origin, yeah, you're right, yeah. yeah. And they have a kind of... Uh, a Christmas carrot? I don't know yeah. <laughs> describe it, but it's like yeah. a sort of a carrot with a face. Yeah. Sort of, it's like a sort of carrot toy, yeah. which certainly, I think, I think it was last year, it was sort of the thing to buy, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Or one of the things to buy. But coming back to the idea of it's game Kevin fit, the carrot. Kevin the carrot, yeah. Mm. Thank, thank you, Gav. Yeah. yeah. It's all right. uh, I think, but I think Kevin has friends this year. They've, they've extended the franchise. Yeah. yeah. But the point I was going to make is, um, and, and the relation to game theory is uh, one always has to consider uh, in oligopolistic markets like supermarkets yeah. so oligopolistic markets mean markets dominated by a few firms is yeah. what if we do this what will everyone else do so in a sense when it comes to Christmas advertising Aldi Asda Tesco Sainsbury's all the big supermarket chains in the UK 
all of them end up spending huge sums of money on advertising. I think in part that is driven by the fact they will be thinking if we we have to do this because they're going to do this. Mm. So in a sense, if they could only collude and think, well, why don't none of us advertise this year? Yeah. We'll save huge sums of money yeah. and all will be well. Yeah. But they can't because collusion no. is illegal. Exactly. So they're always thinking, well, we're going to have to advertise because they're going to advertise loads. Yeah. You, you really see at Christmas that interdependence, which is a sort of characteristic of oligopolistic markets. But it doesn't always work, does it? Well, why, 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 why not? Well, no, just to give an example, um, M&S last year, Marks & Spencer, yeah. spent uh, enormous sums of money on their sort of Christmas advertising campaign. Sales slumped by 5.8%. Wow. Well, there you go. Yeah. Apparently, in 2019, which is slightly old data, uh, £6.8 billion was spent on festive advertising. Oh, that's so big, isn't it's it? huge amounts of it's money. It's a huge sum of money. Um, but ultimately, if Christmas shoppers are going to spend loads, you know, they. I mean, it says they're expected mm-hmm. to spend £80 billion in the final six weeks of the season. Wow, is that just in the UK? Yeah. yeah, I mean, that is then, you know... There's an interesting report back in 2016, I'm slightly old, where it says, why every £1 spent on Christmas adverts turns into £24 profit. Mm. Now, I find that quite interesting. I don't know whether that still holds true. Obviously, you said with Marks and Spencer's. But it probably actually goes against the notion of what we teach in... Um, kind of oligopoly and game theory because you would expect obviously that they would spend all this money yeah and their demand shouldn't change sort of just about you know what I mean you know when you kind of say that if everyone's advertising then there shouldn't be that much alteration but obviously they're all you want to strip out don't you the advertising Mm. I suppose to see whether there would just be that boost anyway yeah I suppose just going back to for example one way of teaching oligopoly is the kinked demand curve model And I don't want to get too technical here, but um, you do get a slight expansion of demand um, in the kink demand curve model. Right. So I suppose the point I'm driving at is they might all do the same thing in terms of advertising. Actually, kink demand curve is probably not that relevant because it's related to price. But let's say everyone cuts their prices and you might think, well, no one's going to benefit from that because no one will gain any market share. But the overall market, Expands, yeah, expands a little bit yeah so they're all getting slightly more slightly more because even though their share of the pie isn't any bigger the pie itself is bigger yeah and one could argue all this advertising it might not mean you gain any more but the pie itself becomes bigger yeah. people are persuaded to spend more at christmas yeah. you know what if you know if next door are buying you know, yeah. Molly or Kevin the Carrot, then we need to buy. A we've Kevin, got to buy yeah. a Daisy or Kevin the Carrot. You know, <laughs> but what yeah. it does highlight, though, also uh, obviously teaching um, kind of efficiency in markets. That six point eight billion highlights, doesn't it? Why oligopoly markets aren't very efficient mm. compared to perfectly competitive ones? Because yeah. ultimately, in order to attract thing, you and that is kind of inefficient use of funds, isn't it? Yeah, six point yeah, eight absolutely. billion. So you know. So there you go. So game theory, advertising, yeah. it all kind of fits in there a little bit, but it seems yeah. like you feel you have to do it. Yeah. If you don't, they will. Yeah. Amazing yeah. stuff. Right. Okay. Well, I'm expecting to see some more thrilling. Oh, can I just say, with regards to advertising, <laughs> think about that. It's interesting nowadays about the, that amount of money they spend on it. 
Mm. And yet, when I spoke to my class recently about this, yeah, yeah. and I tweeted about this, that I started singing, holidays are coming, holidays are coming, like the old Coca-Cola yeah, advert. Yeah. All the kids looked at me and like, what are you singing? Yeah. It's a classic Coca-Cola advert. Yeah. Holidays are coming. And, they, and, and well, this is the thing nowadays, they're spending all this money... Who's watching adverts? Well, but who are the purchasers in the household? Who are yeah. the main purchasers? Because it is interesting because you think as we move forward in time, we you know, we live in a multi-channel world, don't we? You know, if you think about when we were, obviously we're very old these days. <laughs> I tried to one of my fellow teachers today. I said, oh, what are you doing over the weekend? And she said, um, oh, I'm going out with some friends. She's a bit down uh, because, you know, she's the first of us to turn 27. <laughs> and I was like that's a hit uh, but it did make me think well not that didn't make me think but I, I was thinking uh, that just made me depressed it did, it did yeah. make uh, you think yeah <laughs> but I was thinking we do live in a multi-channel world when you and I were sort of certainly young kids there would have been four five, four, five sort of TV channels yeah. uh, but nowadays how many kids watch TV live and watch that advertising. Exactly. Very little. And they'll obviously when they're when they're sort of seventeen year olds become twenty seven, thirty seven, this all might fade away in yeah. some ways. Although, you know, you could see the John Lewis ad uh, on um YouTube, but they'll have to cut it down a bit. Yeah, you because you wouldn't have some three. I think most advert. most students will probably know the Grammarly advert from the first five seconds of a YouTube clip. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about it. Uh, but there you go. Right, okay, jolly good. We've yes. got a new little thing here for Christmas. Ooh. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay, that's lovely. Right, let's get on to the second question. Uh, many people are dreaming of a white Christmas, but after COP20, it's important we all have a green Christmas. No, it's not COP20, is it? I think it's COP26. Oh, COP20. Well, do you know what? I got told off by my brother, who is a regular listener. Oh. And I was like a year ahead. I started talking about COP27. Oh. And he said he was shouting at oh, the... Oh, my word. I, well, know, thanks for picking up the so COP20. It's, it's definitely not COP20. <laughs> <laughs> to time travel. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, we, can, we need to be green. How can it be done? Uh, is Christmas compatible at all with the environment if it encourages excessive consumption which Mo George Monbiot often argues is the bedrock of our problems. Well, let's face it, it probably isn't. <laughs> what? In, in very simple terms. Oh, oh, compatible. Yeah. 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 I mean, having said that, I mean, I suppose people can make sort of green adjustments this Christmas. Mm. I mean, we are sort of both sides of our family, so my wife's family and my family, we now do a secret Santa. Love it. So that um, cuts down quite significantly where well, you've got a big family like mine but yep. even on hers on the volume of presents wrapping paper yeah. being purchased and so on uh, and actually it's interesting uh, my wife's brother was sort of saying well uh, slightly harsh actually but he said well let's face it you often get things you don't want anyway yeah like, mm. and it sort of reminded me of um, your chatter last year about the sort of inefficient nature of sort of often Christmas yeah. present purchases. Yeah, people can listen to old um, editions of our Christmas specials to... Yeah, of to course, it, you've got, you, you could probably have about four <laughs> hours, you know. If you've got a big turkey, I'll say, we'll, we'll be with you all <laughs> every step of the way, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, they'd be delighted. But no, I thought that was interesting, yeah. though, cause it, and I thought, yeah, oh, well, fair enough. And yeah. That is true. Okay, so are you making any green adjustments? Can I just say just quickly, Christmas? I think yeah, of people can. can read about um, that 
in our article we've written for Economics Today, mm. which I'm sure will be recommended later under the section, What Gifts Would We Recommend for Economists? Absolutely. Good. Uh, what, am I, what adjustments am I making? Well, um, I think I, I was saying this uh, to, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, to people about consumables. It's all about consumables, isn't it? Right. Rather than buying plasticky, you know, whatever. Yeah. Things that you can consume. Do you know what? Recently, I think Jeez. I bought the ultimate in plasticky rubbish. Yeah. We took our son, he's only two, to a fireworks display. We didn't even make it to the fireworks because he's so little and it was right. getting a bit late. But we bought him this kind of light up sword. Oh, they're the worst. Made out of plastic. Yeah. And literally, mm. five pounds, yeah. which I was slightly affronted by, yeah. um, and it didn't last till we got home. Yeah. There's a. So it's late. He had a great time for about an hour. Yeah. And then it, it failed. They should ban those things. And he's like, Daddy, screwdriver, screwdriver. Yeah. I like, no, son. No. The screwdriver will not resolve this issue. Well, you, I bet you couldn't <laughs> even get inside it. It's probably sealed completely. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's a joke. But yeah, I so, say- but I, I fell into that, unfortunately. Yeah. And that is now, you know, horrible sort of plastic consumables. Yeah. So you're talking about avoiding those. Yeah. And actually, you sent me a link to this. Uh, Friends of the Earth. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, who are, you know, I'm, 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 I'd give a monthly charitable donation to Friends of the Earth. Oh, good on you. Yeah, I've done for many years. Well done. Uh, but they've got a number of gifts that one can buy. Eco-friendly T-shirts, for example, with a statement uh, linking to one of our old uh, recommended reads, No Planet B. Right. You know, that right. might burn asleep up. Yeah, yeah. love it. Uh, but, uh, which I think is good. Uh, uh, what else can Some you... Some nice, make your own cards. Yeah, Friends of the Earth water bottle rather than buying lots of, uh, you know, rubbishy yeah. sort of plastic water bottles. Send e-cards. Yeah, do you know what? I don't like e-cards. <laughs> no, I don't really. I either send them or yeah. don't send them. Yeah. And I'm quite happy not to get one, but I don't want an e-card. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I do get one, and I won't name the name here, every year and every time. Yeah. And it's got some horrible little animated elf that sort of... Bobs up and down. I think you've not. If you'd made that animated elf, I'd be yeah. impressed. But well, you haven't. And quite frankly, send me a card or don't send me a card. Yeah. Okay. And I'm quite happy not to get one because I appreciate that. There is a Christmas bee saver kit which looks very good. Yeah. Um, you know, 13 bee species have become extinct in the UK since 1900, and a further 35 are on the threatened species list. Buy a Christmas bee saver kit for a loved one and receive bee for bee friendly wildflower seeds. Yeah. And so much more. So there's loads. Basically, you can be as green as you possibly can, can't you? But it's very, 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 very difficult in this world of consumables. Yeah. You know, not consumable, you know, just capitalism. I think um, you can buy too much food. There's no question about that. And it's partly that sense of, I don't want to not be hospitable. Yes, that's a good point. um, But I suppose if you do cook too much, it's sort of being disciplined and sort of turning it into other meals. Mm. And actually... I don't mind doing that. Yeah. You know, you get a big turkey. I don't mind, like, yeah. risotto. Yeah. Turkey soup, curry. Turkey curry. I've done one of them. I will do, like, three or four days. Yeah, there. you can get... Yeah, yeah and I like a, Yeah. So I suppose it's not wasting what you do buy as much as anything else. I think we discussed this in our environmental special, Pete. The three R's. Reduce, reuse, yeah. recycle. So maybe people should think about that mantra throughout yeah, the Yuletide exactly. period. Reduce the amount of food you buy. Reduce yeah. the amount of gifts you buy. Uh, what was the other one? Recycle yeah. gifts. Why not? Re- re-gift. 
Yeah. Everyone gets rubbish stuff they don't really want. And then give it to someone else rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but someone who would like it more. Okay. And then, uh, what was it? Reuse. Yeah. Yeah. Just re wrap up stuff you had last year. Yeah. Especially for little ones. Yeah. They wouldn't have a clue. Wrap up everything you bought Barnaby last year. Yeah. He'd love it. He would know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think we've solved a few problems there? Well, maybe. Now, oh, this that, is the... Isn't that lovely? This is the opportunity for my first poem. Oh, is it? Yeah. Ah, I thought you were going to... Oh, right, okay. I thought at this point you were going to tell me some Christmas cracker jokes. No. Right. I'm doing you, a poem. You've, you've deviated from our loose poem. No, no, no. I haven't. I haven't. Okay. Um, this is a poem that's inspired by George Monbiot's piece called Capitalism is Killing the Planet. It's, I read it to my colleague and she said, this is the worst poem you've ever written. Bin it now. <laughs> <laughs> High praise. Come on. I've got to hear it now. It's called The Last Christmas. I'm just hoping it's not too long. No, no, that looks okay. The Last Christmas. Santa was fuming. There they were. Blah, blah, blah. Disaster was looming. And yet, he could tell from afar that this would do nothing. Nada. Diddly squat. Absolute now. As he chewed on an enchilada, he thought, what a cop-out. Look what was going on in Lapland. Unseasonably warm weather, the lack of snow. And it experienced it firsthand. The increase in flooding that brought terrible woe. He had to do something. Here he was in his privileged position, known from Berlin to Beijing. And so he would make it his mission to bring about change. The problem he knew was consumerism, especially at Christmas, where people would exchange gifts that no one wanted. But it was tradition. All that plastic, all that landfill, all those air miles, and at the heart at the heart of it all was him, the bitterest pill, him, that realization, him. What could he do? What could he do? Whatever he did would make the news. He could go on strike, stick his beard to the road using glue, or talk to the papers and offer his political views. But he knew he had to be big and there was nothing more to be said. He had to be a martyr for the cause. And so the note read, make this the last Christmas, sign Santa Claus. <laughs> wow, that, that, yeah, that's quite bleak. <laughs> <laughs> I hope there's no children listening to this. Well, he's <clears throat> uh, making a grand statement there, even though it's a very depressing statement that he's yeah, making. Yeah. He wants it to end. He realises... Mm. What's he going to do with himself now? Well, he's... Well, I don't want to reveal... I mean, that's... Oh, that's part two, is it? Well, no, it's not part two. I mean, I don't want to talk about it because that's miserable at Christmas. But the... (laughs) the, the, You know, he's becoming a martyr. Oh. Yeah. So, (laughs) let's move on to question three. Quite quickly, please. Christmas cracker jokes. Are they not funny due to the diminishing marginal returns? Right. Okay, so diminishing marginal returns is the idea that... Well, anything one might enjoy if you keep to repeat if you keep repeating it becomes less enjoyable with each sort of uh Yeah. Uh same. Yeah. Okay. So how are you gonna link this to crackers? Well, because I think that's the thing with crackers, isn't it? Like why do people fight if you say to people, Oh, do you like and they go, Well no, it's rubbish, isn't it? The reason why they're rubbish is because they've just heard them so many times. 
Would you like to know a little bit about the history of the Christmas cracker? I would. <laughs> the Christmas cracker was invented by Tom Smith in 1847. Right. He was a confectioner who sold sugared almonds wrapped in twisted paper and very popular at Christmas they were too. And then he started adding stuff like mottos and poems okay, and things like that. Okay. Uh, and then in the 1900s, when his sons were in charge of business, they added the paper hat. And uh, when did it eventually... Oh, I don't know. It doesn't say when I started adding the... Oh, yeah, it does. Inspired the cracking of a log in a fire, he added the surprise bang. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. I like crackers, though. Yeah. They, they, I, I, to be honest, again, sadly, going back to our previous point, they are pretty throwaway, aren't they, to say the least? Yeah. yeah. They're, they're not good. But I think it's, the, it's that thing about... Because you've heard them so many times, you think they're all a little bit rubbish... But uh, th- there is some good ones, though. Can I read them out? Yeah, go on, then. Who hides in the bakery at Christmas? Oh. Mince spies. Yeah, that's the kind of... That's what I'm saying. That's rubbish, <laughs> isn't it? I like that you, one. You know, but what happens is, is every every year now... Oh, I've got a really good one here. Right. Sorry, can I cut in one more yeah, time? Yeah, go on. Right. And you'll like this one as sort of director of chess at right. your school. Yeah. What do you call a group of chess players bragging about their prowess in a hotel lobby? I don't know. Chestnuts boasting in an open foyer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that actually, was very good. I, I think quite like that one. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I've not heard that before. No, no. So maybe that's, we... that's what I'm saying. I liked it because I haven't heard that one. Yeah, I've, I, I have heard the Min Spice Yeah, the Min Spice one, one is a, is a, is a classic. But isn't there sometimes some like, oh, familiarity? Oh, brilliant. Yeah, I suppose like Morecambe and Wise at Christmas. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I do get that, that familiarity, but Here I just think again. generally you're not going to be rip-roaring around the table going, ha, oh my word, did you hear that? It's not a about? peak life experience, is it? No, no. Oh. But what I'm saying is, is, is now, every year for the last eight years... Uh, the TV channel Gold has um, basically got people to vote on the best Christmas cracker joke, basically for sort of that year. Oh, so okay. we're starting to see kind of. So this was the top ten cracker joke uh, of last year. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, what is Dominic Cummings' favourite Christmas song? Don't know. Driving home for Christmas. Mm. Not very good, is it? No. Uh, number two was... Is that number one? Yeah, I know. Unbelievable. That's rubbish. Did you hear that the production was down at Santa's workshop? Yeah. Many of his workers had to elf-isolate. That's uh, a bit better. It's not really a rib tickler, though, is Why it? Why are Santa's reindeer allowed to travel on Christmas Eve? They have herd immunity. Mm. Now, the thing about They're a bit this, try hard, aren't yeah, they? That's what I'm saying. Is I was thinking, oh, I'm going to try and think of some economics ones that we can use for today. Mm. And yet, when you're trying to squeeze a joke in, yeah. it becomes very difficult. It's like all the best ones I've already used. Yeah. Now, we're going to have a little quiz here, Pete. Okay, all right. And I'm hoping that you um, haven't opened the link that I've opened. I have not opened the link that you've opened. I don't know what you mean, so that means that I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, come on. so here we go. It's quite simple. I'm going to do five Christmas jokes. Yes. That's pretty simple. All you've got yeah. to do is guess the punchline. Mm, okay. Yeah. All right. That sounds quite tough. I think it will be fine. Okay. Well, go okay. <clears throat> what did Adam yell on the day before Christmas? It's Christmas Eve. 
Correct. Oh. One. <laughs> Why did Santa's helper see the doctor? Uh, was it something to do with elf, like health? Close. To get some good elf or something. Yeah, that, that works though, doesn't it? Yeah. Because he had low elf esteem. All right. I'll give you a half for that. Thank you. Yeah, okay. that's very generous. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. Like Christmas, that. why not? Here's a classic. Why couldn't the skeleton go to the Christmas party? Uh, don't know. He had no body to go with. Oh. It's always a classic. But, you know, technically a skeleton is part of a body, isn't it? Uh, I don't want to get into technical matters. Yeah. <laughs> what does Father Christmas do when his elves misbehave? I don't know. I don't know. He gives them the sack. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and then final one. Okay. Uh, why don't you see penguins in Britain? Um, in Britain is the key there. In Britain. Why don't you see penguins in Britain? I don't know. Because they're afraid of whales. Oh, are penguins afraid of whales, though? <laughs> I kind of get sharks, but whales? Okay, uh, you got one and a half out of five. You started strongly. I'm sort of proud of that, though. You started they're, they're strongly. Quite poor. Yeah, they are, you know. Yeah. Uh, can I just say that um, in my Christmas quizzes at school, uh, that is a, a round that I play with my students. Is it? Yeah. And they really enjoy it. Oh, good. Yeah, and they do. They come up with some much better answers sometimes than the actual... Joke. So there you go. Anyway, yeah. Christmas cracker jokes. Yeah. Okay, number four. Was Jesus the first socialist? Or what economics can we find in the Bible? Well, interesting, because obviously we're coming up to Christmas and... Uh, we can forget in all of this. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we have. That, uh, Already you know, we've gone straight in with capitalism. We have, yeah. So true um, meaning. Christmas is uh, allegedly <laughs> the time. Wait, Mark, I suppose it at least celebrates uh, the birth of Jesus. Yeah. yeah? And so your, your question was, does, well, does Christmas mark the birth of the first socialist? Yeah. Uh, what do we think? I probably think No. Uh, Why does that? Well, I think in order to sort of answer the question, we should first define what we understand by socialism. Yeah, I'm sorry to be boring about that. No, that's a very good. It's a good question. So I've got a definition for you here. Yeah. A political and economic theory of social organisation, which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. Yeah. I don't think Jesus advocates any of that. No. I mean, I suppose. So, from my view, it's hard to see him as a socialist, but you can definitely see a sympathy with the poor. Yeah. And perhaps more arguably, but I think it's there, an antipathy towards the rich. Uh, but I don't think he was a socialist. What do you think? Well, I think this is a really fascinating debate, particularly in, in quite a religious company like... Um a country like America, I think, yeah. isn't it? Because oh, it is. If you go online, they, they both want to kind of <laughs> Google this. claim him as their mm. own, as it were. You know, because clearly mm. there is a lot of people who focus in on the redistribution, redistribution of wealth. One, you know, in terms of you know. But does uh, Jesus ever talk 
about the redistribution of wealth. Well, he, he says to the least of these in the scriptures in Matthew twenty five yeah. forty. Apparently, he says something about you know we've got to fight. But then the kind of more free marketeers sort of kind of focus in on the parable of talents, don't they? Yeah. You know, which is this idea of what you did, what you, why didn't you do something with it? You know, yeah, speculate to accumulate, you, yeah. you idiot. I've got some great quotes. Yeah. yeah, go for it. So this is St. Paul's letter, second letter to the Thessalonians. And this just sounds like um, Pretty Patel or something in the UK. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Yeah. That's quite harsh, yeah, isn't it? can it? be pretty brutal at times. Yeah. Uh, but then... On the con- this is also, I think this is, oh, I'm going to sort of, I don't know whether Timothy was an epistle writer or this is Paul writing to Timothy. Right. So I can only apologise for our, the biblical scholars listening. <laughs> but this is the quote, and this is yeah. a very famous quote. I, I think it's Paul writing to Timothy, but I might be wrong. All right. uh, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. By the way, it's not saying money is the root of all evils. I think it's often misquoted, that one. But the love of money is. Yeah. But for me, ultimately, I don't think Jesus is about uh, economics at all. I think he's about sort of uh, the spiritual dimension of life. So, here's another (laughs) quote. (laughs) You're looking at me like I'm mad. Uh, (laughs) Well, this is a quote from Proverbs, actually, Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. And I think that's all about getting spiritual stuff inside yeah. you rather than riches or poverty. Yeah. Yeah. There's one a proverb here which is a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Yeah. You know, he wants you to be a self-starter. <laughs> I mean, that's you... I mean, there's loads of stuff in there, though, but it is, it yeah. is quite interesting to, to try and interpret it because he, he obviously wants people to help each other, mm. but at the same time, like you say, about going back to the roots of what socialism is, his focus is clearly on charity, isn't it? Yeah. And this yeah. is the thing about you look after each other, and this is why you can see when they have these kind of sometimes horriblish debates in America where it's like um, health insurance, whatever. And you're like, why don't we, you know, create mm. free health insurance? Well, because you should look after yourself. And then when people say, well, what about people who can't afford health insurance? Well, they have to rely on charity. Mm. And then, ho- you know, and that's the kind of an argument that, that is often used yeah, by very yeah. kind of religious, yeah, yeah. you know, people w- w- over there. And you yeah. kind of think, surely, surely we should help these people. Yeah, yeah, but I, not as a not as a government, not as a yeah, state yeah, yeah. kind of thing uh, to do that. So, yeah. you know, there's a there's a brilliant. I, I thing don't in, agree with it, right? but I can see the argument, even yeah. though I don't agree with it. And it's the idea that there's some guy, uh, sort of Lawrence Reed, I was reading, uh, and he said, Christian charity, being voluntary and heartfelt, is utterly distinct from the compulsory impersonal mandates of the state. And so the idea there is. There's quite a, there's a qualitative difference being forced to sort of give your money to the state and yeah. then sort of giving it and you giving it. Now, I don't agree with that because I think it actually removes, you know, let's say, say unemployment benefit, for example. Someone's lost a job through no fault of their own. It's sort of, in, it would be, 
embarrassing to them. It's sort of uh, sort of dignified to have to rely on charity at that point. Yeah. And he kind of thinks, surely, for me, you know, rightly or wrongly, this is my view, the state at that point should, you know, provide a sort of a standard of living. For yeah, a little for safety net. Yeah. But, you know, even though I don't agree with it, you can see the logic of the point of view of that yeah. it's not... You shouldn't be forced to be charitable. And 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 Lawrence Reed is is writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, which is an American conservative libertarian yes, think tank. It very much is, yeah. But I mean, we will share that uh, article because it is an interesting Ooh. article to read. And yeah, and it's honest, like all these things. Um, even if you disagree with it, it's worth knowing what other people think. Yeah, absolutely. And I do disagree yeah. with it, uh, you know, but you know, it's it's, it's an interesting read. Yeah. Because, but to build, uh, to go back to the original question, though, I don't think Jesus is a socialist. Right. Yeah. Because it, well, it depends how one defines socialism, but socialism, as I understand it, well, certainly, if you go to like sort of Marxism, it's sort of theoretical Marxism. Socialism is the phase, sort of as capitalism is phased out, you get a period of socialism before you move towards sort of communism, and certainly if you go to sort of uh, first century Palestine, you're not looking at some post sort of capitalist era. Mm. So I don't want to get too technical, but I think it's. Uh... Does that mildly feed into our next question? It does, yeah. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> so we're basically ruling it out. I think so, but but the point I'm making is, in some respects, Jesus is sort of two thousand years for the best part of two thousand years before capitalism. So how can you say he's a socialist? That's a, that's a fair. But what we'll also do is that we have found a link that's got all these kind of quotes related to economics in the yeah. Bible, and people can just reel through them, make their own mind up. There's a surprising amount of economics in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, if I wanted to, I could pick that to support yeah. my view. And and that is the point yeah. I think that if was I was being, left wing, yeah. I could use that one. If I was right wing, no, I could and, use this, that yeah. one. <laughs> and this Forbes article that, that, that we'll also post basically mm. makes that point, isn't it? Mm. It's that classic stuff about. You can find what you want. Yeah. Uh, was it lies, damn lies, and statistics, but yeah. within the Bible context? Yeah. Brilliant stuff. Okay. Um, what would have been the economic situation in Bethlehem in 1 AD, Pete? <laughs> now, I'm looking forward to this because Pete's on his own. <laughs> I just thought it would be interesting to consider. Obviously, you know, every year we celebrate Christmas, and Christmas is, um, you know, uh, based on or related to the birth of Jesus, yeah, in in a physical place, yeah, uh, Bethlehem, yeah, uh, at the start of what we now call the Common Era. Love it. So yeah. I thought it'd be interesting. Well, like, what kind of economy was uh, you know Jesus born into? Yeah. So, are you with me? So yeah, far? no, I'm I'm I'm, I'm there. <laughs> yeah. So I thought of as a bit of a sort of way of structuring this, we consider consider the Human Development Index. So human. <laughs> okay. All right. So if we were to give an HDI rating to uh, sort of, you know, Bethlehem and its surrounds in the first sort of uh, century of the Common Era, what kinds of things we'd be looking at? So if you remember, the Human Development Index consists of three elements. Let me test you. What are they, Gavin? Uh, education. Yes. Uh, GDP. Yeah. And GDP per capita. Yeah. And uh, health. Yeah, health or, or life expectancy. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm going to sort of talk a little bit about each of those what, things. mean years of schooling? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, so bear with me here. 
So GDP per capita. So first of all, I, I suspect unemployment, which would contribute to GDP per capita, is probably quite low. Right. But there would be lots of low-paid or subsistence work in the ancient world. A lot of fishermen. Bit of carpentry. <laughs> Shepherding. Yeah. Yeah. Viniculture. Yeah. Uh, basically, you're looking at an agrarian economy. Yeah. So, you know, it mentions in the odd Christmas carol, shepherds watching their flocks by night. Mm. I reckon there's quite a bit of that. Mm. Interestingly, by the way, even though we celebrate um, sort of Christmas 25th of uh, December, there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that if, you know, you're sort of uh, actually going to pick a date for the nativity, you might be more like March, springtime. Yeah. Yeah. For the simple reason, shepherds wouldn't be out Sort of on the mountainsides in the middle of in the middle of winter. You be, I don't I don't want to be rude, Pete. Yeah. But you've been quite picky on a lot of things tonight. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're not going to like the next bit. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the Christmas cracker jokes was just the start of it. Yeah, I'm sorry. You I'm know. sorry. I'm, ru- <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm ruining Christmas. I apologise. Okay. In, interestingly. Uh, and obviously, Jesus himself, do you think he was poor or rich by sort of birth? I'm going to say rich. Interesting. Why, why would you say that? Well, I just think a carpenter would probably be Ooh. in high demand, maybe. Yeah, possibly. Not crosses um, to be made. Yeah, but uh, possibly. <laughs> 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 so anyway, interesting you should say that, because uh, the New Testament, which obviously details the life of Jesus, is written in Greek. Right. And the word for carpenter, uh, technon, right. uh, could actually mean a number of things. Right. And there's, there's actually a surprising <laughs> amount of uh, literature debating this. Was Joseph actually a carpenter? Technon could mean handyman, right. but equally it could mean architect. Oh, my word. That so, really lifts the game. Yeah, yeah, no, it really does. Uh, but certainly if you look at the sort of... Uh, there must have been a lot of primary products, low added value. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect competition. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Why do you say that? <laughs> well, a lot of small traders, homogenous goods, many buyers, many sellers. Yeah. Perfect knowledge. You're not going out anywhere, are you? Yeah. Probably around Bethlehem. <laughs> <laughs> well, a huge amount of subsistence agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, when Jesus was uh, circumcised, presented himself at the ten- temple, mm. It, you could it, norm, the normal thing to do if you're wealthy was to hand over a lamb which would be sacrificed but if you're relatively poor you would hand over a couple of turtle doves right which, oh is that why they featured in the uh... well I, I don't know you know the sort of 12 days of Christmas yeah. talks about two turtle doves but apparently Jesus's family handed over turtle doves which doesn't suggest a huge amount of wealth wow All right yeah, okay so I thought that was quite interesting yeah you've been digging deep so I'm going to say that's GDP per capita covered and I'm saying GDP per capita was not particularly high yeah alright okay so healthy life expectancy alright yeah so that's another feature of GDP yeah now life expectancy (laughs) I've seen an estimate of this was about 22 or 23 wow that's pretty damn low isn't it Jesus did alright then didn't he (laughs) because he was about what 33 30 well, there's different reports about that, yeah, but 33, right. some people believe he was older, by the way. Right. Yeah, more like 46. Which would then put him in maybe the, if you work on today's standards, 
that obviously the wealthier ones yeah. are the ones who survive longer. Yeah. Now, if you strip out child mortality, by the way, kids dying under the age of five, yeah. then it rises to probably about 40, 45. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right, okay. Now, Herod obviously probably brought that down yeah. a bit for a temporary period. Yeah. Yeah. So, there we are. Uh, so that's life expectancy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Which wasn't great. Yeah. Even when you strip out mortality, child right. mortality. Yeah. It's not wonderful. Yeah, but we should we should probably be comparing it to other parts of the world at that particular time, shouldn't we? Yeah, and actually, probably. Um, by the way, um, it's sort of where where is Bethlehem in the sort of geopolitical terms at that time? <laughs> Right. You might be interested to know this, Gav. It wasn't actually part of the Roman Empire. It's kind of what we call, they called a client state. Right, okay. Yeah. Up until about... So like Britain and Hong Kong? Yeah, sort of, yeah. I think they had these sort of people who said, look, you're, you're sort of with us. Right. We're not going to formally make you... We're not going to rule over you. Is but... it like Europe and Turkey? No. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to give us stuff, but we're not going to rule over you. And also, you're on our side rather than the other crew. Cause it's, it's, I'm seeking out here a modern analogy. And I'm that. struggling to find one. <laughs> but where Palestine was, basically, or, or Judea, right. whatever you want to call it, um, was... God, that's controversial, isn't it, even saying that now? Right. But there we are. It was kind of a buffer state between... You've got Syria, Roman province, Parthia to the east, right. which is like Roman, Rome's big rivals... And then you've got Judea, Palestine, which is sort of ooh, a bit of a buffer state. We want them on our side because we don't want the, the Parthians getting a piece of that. Right. Yeah. But anyway, uh, sh- sh- shall, I, shall I move on to education? Yeah, go on. Yeah. Apparently, there was a 98% illiteracy rate. Wow. Yeah. And there's, some, there's, there's a, a lively debate about whether Jesus was literate or not. Really? Yeah. So, on the one hand, he's very knowledgeable about scripture, yeah. but on the other hand, some people would say, well, at the time, a lot of uh, religious teaching would have been oral, and he might have just yeah. soaked up a lot of this teaching orally. Yeah. Well, they always talk about that in terms of, uh, I think Benjamin Zephaniah talks about that mm. a lot in terms of black culture and all wisdom yeah. and about how things just aren't written down but certainly if you go back even yeah. further things like the Iliad and the Odyssey sort of ancient Greek texts they almost certainly were recited for many many decades if not centuries before they were written down Yeah, which is interesting isn't it because you think people must have had an enormous capacity it's almost like yeah. a part of the brain which we no longer exercise to the same degree Yeah. so it may well be that uh, and even, why, yeah. even among Christian circles it's not just sort of people sort of you know, that also, there's quite a strong debate about whether uh, Jesus was literate or not but those passing down of teachings is your classic thing isn't it about diseconomies of scale whenever we teach diseconomies of scale mm. obviously through the as it were, organisation, the chain of command, mm. potentially it, the message gets, it, within a bigger organisation, the message gets changed yeah. as you go through so the organisation. It's almost like oral text. Yeah, like exactly. the Odyssey So if you think about that from a year, like a, a hundred year point of view, yeah. trying to tell stories through one person to another yeah. story, and then so you can see how, but, again, open to interpretation everything is. Did he really yeah. say that? Or did he? Yeah, mm. interesting. Uh, 
The, the other aspect is, so I'm just going to mention one more thing, because yeah. I, I suspect I'm boring you about sort of... Uh... <laughs> Not boring me, Pete, you're just boring our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Bethlehem in Italy is not part of the Roman Empire, but it does become part of the Roman right. Empire. And, you know, the census, like Jesus goes off to take part in the census. Um, you know, that's why, not Jesus, Joseph and Mary, that's why they got back to Bethlehem. Right. Okay. They've got to take part in the census, yeah. apparently. Did they claim to be um, Jedis? Uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what is interesting about that? The census, which most scholars believe that that could have been, takes place in 6 AD. All right. But Herod, you know, infant killer Herod, yeah. he dies... I don't in... think he would have been branded that, would he? He was, ki- he was a king, wasn't he? Yeah, I'm not Just sure. Just calling King Herod. I'm not sure he would have minded, actually. They were quite... <laughs> Herod and his children were, were pretty brutal. To right, OK. But he died in 4 BC. So the two elements which are connected ba, ba, with ba, ba, the ba. nativity story, mm. uh, they didn't actually happen at the same time. Oh, my word. Which, the nati- you know, draws into sort of... Relief, you know, some of the historicity of yeah. the nativity story. Why aren't people standing at the school gates complaining about that, Pete? I don't know. They're <laughs> too busy complaining <laughs> about being vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, they've, so, they've uh, got it all wrong. Herod's son, Herod Archelaus, yeah. he becomes a kind of a king to replace Herod in this part. Basically, his kingdom's divided amongst his three sons. Right. But eventually, the Roman Emperor Augustus said, oh, God, he's useless, right. and gets rid of him. And then it does become more tightly part of the Roman Empire. But all of this, this connection with the Roman Empire, leads to taxes. Right. They get taxed, which indicates that there must have been a money economy, yeah. or at least you know, payment in kind of, yeah. sort of, uh, of taxes. But there's a bit in the Bible... It's one of my favourite bits, actually, although yeah. I'm not religious. You know, you're sort of mildly religious, yeah. but, you know, I'm, I'm not religious. But I like the bit where some teacher, some Pharisees come up to Jesus and trying to catch him out. And they say, what about this coin, Jesus? Mm. Should we give it to, you know, the Roman emperor? Uh, you know, because, you know, they're asking for our taxes. And obviously taxes were incredibly unpopular. Yeah. And so Jesus says... Give to, G- uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, you know, yeah, you give the taxes to them, but you've got to give your kind of spiritual stuff to God. Yeah. yeah. Clever answer. Would that go Night, back to him then. being a, a socialist then? I don't think it does, no. I think he's almost saying, you know, I'm, oh, not, know, I'm know not interested just, in the material I know the that, material what I'm realm. saying is that if, if they want the money and they think they can do good things with it, mm. I don't know. So maybe. Maybe, probably not. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> tax collectors, very unpopular. Yeah. Um, well paid? Probably. Well, it, the old tax system is interesting in the Roman Empire as well. They've got tax, I think tax guys called publicani. Right. Uh, which I used to think when I was little, oh, publicans, like they're like innkeepers or something. Yeah. But no, it's just a sort of a coincidence, really. Yeah, right, okay. But they used to kind of uh, say, right, okay, in Rome or wherever, we want a tax, Judea. And we're going to, like, have a little auction. Whoever bids the most, we'll let them do the tax collecting. As right. long as they send us this amount, they can squeeze those wow. buggers in Judea. Right, outsourcing. For as much as they Competitive want. Competitive yeah, tendering? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there yeah. You go. Um, but obviously that made tax collectors incredibly unpopular because yeah. they had to collect the bit to send back to Rome, but then also a bit more for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Brutal, mm. I bet. As so you can imagine, like, the equivalent of the Taxpayers' Alliance being 
pretty far. To be honest, the Jews did revolt against it, you know, amongst other mm. things. And you can imagine why. Yeah. I'm sure our listeners now are discovering yeah. that uh, Pete's favourite little bit of history is the Roman. Uh, <laughs> I've got one last little bit, by the way. Yeah. One last little bit sure. in this area, yeah. So genie coefficients, which we've mentioned, yeah. Yeah, love it. Someone, there's some scholars who've done a genie coefficient of the Roman Empire. Right, well, I bet it was big. Very unequal. Yeah. Apparently less unequal than the modern US. No way. Which I find incredible. Yeah. But apparently it was. Well, thank you for that, Pete. Which I would find very difficult to believe. But there we are. Well, I think what you've done there is is laid out a beautiful framework of what... Um, Bethlehem was like back in one eighty. <laughs> thank you very much. that bell's a lot more peaceful than the yeah, one we've had you know well before. I think we bring a bit of tranquility to the Christmas season yeah why not? so um, why should you invest in shares just before Christmas well Gavin you tell me can I ask you a question first of all mm. do you invest generally no I have been looking though for a um, you know a kind of an online share trading account site yeah yeah but um, I used to have one but now I'm looking to enter the market again. Oh, you've got some disposable funds. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking to speculate to accumulate. Pete. Right. Yeah. Okay, so you tell me. But really, what I should be doing is sticking my dosh in now. Go so on. basically, I found this excellent paper called Christmas Economics of Sleigh Ride uh, by Laura Berg and Anna Gudecki. I've mm. probably said that wrong. Mm. Um, and it was certainly. quite fascinating. Like the whole like document is brilliant. But the one thing I kind of picked up on was about how uh, with stock markets at Christmas, there's apparently a pre-holiday effect in terms of celebrating Christmas. So people, a bit like the old Keynesian um, you know, animal spirits, yeah. people like go, hey, it's Christmas, and mm. start kind of loading into really? um, yeah, yeah. The, the share market. And so what you start seeing is that these stocks start kind of going up and up and up and mm. uh, the pre-holiday. And do they crash so, in January? Uh, I, well, I assume they. I assume they. They must do. But what's interesting about it is this. This. Um, it's. It's quite well written. This article because they kind of do it through um, a conversation between the reindeers. I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And um, but they're saying like Blitzen replies. But this cannot be true. It contradicts Fama's efficient market hypothesis. <laughs> if it is as simple as you say, this knowledge should be sufficient for all rational investors exploiting this fit effect so that it disappears. Yeah, and then it says, and Janga, Nathan, et al. show that investors are more likely to make their investment choices at the end of the year. Therefore, abnormal returns on special and predetermined occasions such as Christmas cannot exist. But apparently, it does. It says, it says, um, what was it? Uh, 10 times higher returns compared to the rest of the year. 
Well, fascinating. So there you go. I'm sort of surprised in some ways, though, because I just don't think anyone's got any spare cash at that time of year. Well, obviously, the international kind of investment market is always wading in cash, isn't it? So, yeah, it says uh, uh, several empirical studies report that returns preceding religious holidays tend to be superior to returns of other holidays. And this pre-holiday effect has not only been established in the US in several studies, but also in several other markets well there we are then so if you have got spare cash bong it in now and to be honest many people because of obviously the pandemic haven't gone on holidays yeah and stuff like that so if anyone is listening to this yeah and takes advantage of the pre-holiday effect and make a lot of money and we are the reason yeah maybe yeah. What did Jesus say? Share, <laughs> share the load? No, maybe not. <laughs> sure <he didn't. laughs> I'm sure he didn't say share the load. Whatever, maybe. Um, yeah, I think, Gavin, you're, you're about to start a market bubble there. Eh? Yeah. Good. I mean, we've got so many listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Right. Okay. The pre-holiday effect sounds so wonderful. Anyway, uh, advent calendars. Now, uh, in my day um, and your day, they were just little bits of uh, card that you just whack open, a little thing, and you'd be delighted with it. But nowadays, they're a huge growing market. I love but advent. why, Pete? Tell us all about it. I love advent calendars. Yeah, but do you like the kind of modern day invention of advent calendars? Uh, no. But I, I probably, but do you know what? I've got a homemade, well, it's not homemade, but I've got a wooden advent yeah. calendar, which makes me sound about 900 years old. Yeah. Uh, and you pull out a little drawer, and in that you can put whatever you want. So yeah. there's like a one all the way through to 25. Well, so do, what I do yeah. is I put little jokes in there. Oh, that's nice. Or Christmas facts. Right. The old Christmas poems. Screw them up quite small, you know, little folded over bits of paper, and a small chocolate. Yeah. And then my wife and my daughter, and probably this year, the little fella, even though he can't read. Yeah. We pull them out. He, he loves the chocolate, though. Yeah. Now Can we read them. Huh? I do like a Playmobil Christmas calendar as well, and I know I shouldn't promote. So a what we should brand. say really is is uh, uh, explain a little bit about how what are the what are the kind of new advent calendars you can get. People? Well, so for example, you can get. I think there's a big beauty uh, trade. Yes. So for example, you might have uh, you know one of the makeup brands, and you know on each day you open up a little sort of tester sample of different sort of. Bits of makeup, yeah. yeah, and and you can get toy versions. You can. You can there are so yeah. many. Gin obviously is a really popular one. There's so many versions, aren't there, these days of these yeah. big things. Now, do you want a little bit of history about advent calendars, Pete? Yeah, love some. Okay, apparently, uh, it started in the 19th century with uh, German Protestants marking the days of Advent either by burning a candle or simply marking walls. Okay, and the person who is supposedly the first person who came up with a kind of um, mass-produced advent calendar is a person called Gerhard uh, Lang. Right. Okay. And um, his was an interesting story because if you read around it a little bit, the reason he was inspired to do this is because apparently his mother used to give him, created an advent calendar for him as a small Mm. boy and gave him little sweets each day. Mm. And so that then, later on in his life, he wanted to produce it. Anyway, so he started up and then, quite interestingly, in the uh, World War Two, yeah. um, cardboard was rationed. 
Right. And so his business, he was the first person to introduce the flaps. Yeah. 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 Uh, basically went out of business. Hmm. Okay. What was interesting is that the Nazis produced their own advent calendars. <laughs> oh, nice. uh, but they were kind of more pamphlets. <laughs> And basically, uh, they had little swastikas and blown up tanks. How nice. <laughs> Their little thing. That's quite odd. And then after World War II, um, the, the next person who came along was this guy called Richard Selmar of Stuttgart. And he's famous for, again, well, he got a contract, I think, or something like that. He was allowed to produce some American kind of copy, or something happened. And he created the first kind of traditional winter town scene. And apparently his company still exists and you can buy that very original, um, not, you know, original, original, yeah. uh, um, uh, advent calendar. So it's kind of quite interesting. Here's a little fun fact for you, Pete, because I know you love this stuff. Um, what is, where is the word, uh, what advent derived from? Advent? Oh, it must be Latin. Yeah. So add towards the vent. No, it's, it just means coming, really. All oh, right. Oh, so it's like obviously yeah, stuff's yeah, yeah. coming. So normally yeah. it's to do with baptism originally, wasn't it? Oh, it's okay. the coming of Christ, isn't it? Yeah, no, but originally it was to do with kind of baptism stuff, and then it got converted into this kind of mm. Christmas uh, kind of link to. We saw Christmas wreaths growing up. Did you have them? Uh, little wreath. We had like three candles for each week leading up to Christmas, right. and on Christmas Day you'd light a red candle. Yeah, right. That's quite a Catholic nice, thing. It? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was nice though. So each Sunday leading up to Christmas. Yeah. Well, there you go. Anyway, so that was that was the little history yeah. of. Uh, but apparently, it's just an absolute massive market. But yeah. no one can really work out whether they're actually good deals or not, because what yeah. you're doing is a lot of those little taster pots. Yeah, they and actually... because they're not formally sold, mm. like on the high street, you don't know whether you're getting a good deal or no. not. So it's a very much a bit like. Um, kind of behavioural economics you think yeah. you're getting something out of it yeah. but there's a bit of kind of asymmetric information going on there you don't know you know some people yeah. argue with like the beauty products that you said that you do get really really good deals um, yeah. but basically sales are up by about 15 to 20 percent in the UK well I did read a BBC News article about this right and um, shall I read you a little quote yeah go on so why they're popular yeah and I think it is quite interesting. I'll talk about that in a minute. But on London's Oxford Street, shopper Rosanna has just visited John Lewis, which is selling 15 different non-traditional advent calendars this year. So, you know, you make up ones and you, uh, and so on. She tells me she likes the concept. They look quite nice and they remind you of childhood. So I think there is a large market in nostalgia. Yeah. And I really do think that. And plus, there's a large market in kind of self-care. And I think quite cleverly, a lot of marketers are sort of combining those two things. People who sort of like quite nostalgic about their childhoods, but also sort of want to feel like they're pampering themselves. Yeah. So if you marry those two things together, you're seeing a shift out in the demand curve. Yeah. I think there's probably a link also to oligopolistic markets of classic non-price competition. In something like the beauty market, yeah. you, know, that you can kind of push these products. Yeah, so rather than sort of, oh, yeah, our, our range is cheaper than your range, oh, we've got this, you know, advent yeah. calendar range. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. They do say, I mean, that like for some of the companies, it is very expensive to make. They say Joe Malone, you know, 
is labour intensive and expensive. The team assembles, wraps products and packs the calendars by hand. Yeah. So, you know, they end up being very expensive. Yeah. If you can get your hands on I mean, it is quite... Massive premium, though. As soon as you put by hand, everyone's like, oh, yeah, maybe yeah, that, that, that is true. Everyone seems to pay an enormous premium for that, don't they? Like, some, it's quite interesting, isn't it? This whole idea of the authenticity of uh, a product. People pay a huge premium for that. Yeah. A handmade this, a handmade yeah. that. It's it's interesting. Uh, there's um, people who who believe that you'll actually get advent calendars kind of coming all year round now, doing like countdowns too. Countdown to Valentine's Day. Uh, countdown to Mother's Day. I was going to swear then, and so I'm not happy with that. Well, that, I mean, ultimately, the history of the advent calendar generally has shifted. So why not in this modern marketplace? It can shift again. Stop it! Stop it! I'm just saying. I'm not happy. I'm telling you what the world is saying. Come on, let's move and on. If you don't like it, I'm stopping my ears. <laughs> <laughs> so, what gifts are we recommending for economists? Well, I looked. I looked this up actually. There's a, a website called inomics.com oh. and they had a little blog the best Christmas ideas for an economist love it my favourite well there was, two, there, was two, there was two actually which I quite liked one which uh, there's a mug and we love a mug don't we economics yeah. in 10 mugs which yeah. we've got collected items yeah talk is cheap supply exceeds demand that nice that's good yeah, yeah so you like a slogan mug yeah that's yeah. quite nice and then <laughs> slogan t-shirt slightly less PC I'm not quite sure how this sits in a model uh, in the modern Me Too era. Economists do it with models. Yeah. Then with a picture of a supply and demand curve. Yeah, well, that's and, quite funny. But that website is actually quite a good website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, my own personal recommendation, and it, this is, might be slightly left field, but I've read a really good book recently, and you, and, and partly indirectly, yeah. this links to you because uh, right. Gavin came round for dinner or Sunday lunch of the day, and he inflicted. A cheese board on him. Yeah. And he, 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 like, I, I did like the cheeses. Yeah, I, just thought, yeah, I thought you were slightly critical of them, but yeah, <laughs> but there we are. Well, I read a really good book recently, A Cheesemonger's Guide to the British Isles. Oh, right. And you might think, why am I recommending that to economists? But and it's by a chap called Ned Palmer. But what is interesting about the book is, like through this one product, cheese, you do actually cover a lot of economics. So, right. for example, it talks about the enclosure movement and how that impacted on agriculture and ultimately cheese. Yeah. Talks about the impacts of rationing. Talks about the formation of the milk marketing board and how that impacted on, uh, you know, this sort of monolithic uh, sort of state-controlled organisation and how that impacted right. sort of the, you know, on this particular market. So if you like cheese and you like economics or, you know, history as well, yeah, it's a really good book. So I'm going to recommend either one of those products from the Inomics website or that book. Yeah, nice. It's what nice about you? Is. Well, what I've tried to do, Pete, is try to relate it to our former podcasts as a way Ooh. of trying to promote them. Good, slightly <laughs> desperate, but yeah, I like it. So first of all, I'd like to say my wife got me last year a private eye subscription. Yeah, I've had and that I one, would yeah. probably recommend that. I mean, yeah. I'm going to stop it. I have to admit, because actually, I find it too depressing. Yeah. But that is perfect. We're, our next podcast is going to be about James Buchanan. Yeah. So you know, if you want to know about, you know, the kind of corruption, choice, private eyes, brilliant for that. Um, there's a great game by Big Potato Games. We've recommended their games before. Yeah, and the game's called 
herd mentality. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, so it kind of links to behavioural economics. Very topical. Daniel Kahneman. Very topical. And obviously, yeah, been talking about, and links to our coronavirus special when we talked about herd men. Herd immunity. Herd immunity, even. Right. Yeah. And uh, what this game's about is you've got to try and work out within your friends, you've got to try and not be the odd one out. Right. So it might say something like, best ice cream flavour. So you yeah. look around the room and I go, right, yeah. my son's going to say chocolate. Yeah. I think my daughter might say chocolate. So I'm going to say chocolate. Yeah. And you don't want to be the odd one out or you basically collect the pig which means you can't win the game uh, so, so you don't want to be like yeah so and it's quite good it's like, like a, a, to- a token based game it's a really we've played it as a family mm. and I can highly recommend it well, I know you always like a board game yeah um, I think we should recommend that um, Amartya Sen has got a biography out was he yeah so and um, autobiography or biography he wrote it oh right yeah so is that auto that's auto yeah <laughs> <laughs> he wrote it himself so read his book I think and I think I said it, I was trying to buy this for you, but I couldn't get it. And in fact, I've, it, they've announced it, but you can't find it anywhere. And um, Esther Duflo's partner. Yeah. Well, they husband. Abhijit Banerjee. Yeah. Pretty He's right. written a book, cookbook, a cookbook oh, right. called oh. um, Cooking to Save Your Life. Wow. So apparently he's a brilliant cook. Right. And so he's written a cookbook and uh, it's been at, like, there's no traditional pictures of the dishes. Yeah. Apparently it's beautifully drawn by someone. So there's that. Um, obviously, a subscription to Economics Today yeah. would be absolutely perfect gift for Amazing, yeah. Economics A level people. Yeah, uh, and just two two more. Just finally, there's a board game called Broke, right? That was uh, designed to create empathy for those in the most poorest circumstances. Hmm. And linked to that, there's a thing called Inequality Opoly, the digital board game of structural racism and sexism in America, which is an educational property trading game. So it's a bit hmm. like Monopoly. But what it does, it gives you at the start of the game a card and it tells you basically who you are in terms of Asian or whatever, Latin, yeah. Latin American, um, uh, Hispanic. And, and then you then go around this board and depending on who you are, you've got to roll dice and you've got to roll certain things to get to yeah. where you've got to be. Sounds like the perfect game to play with elderly relatives. <laughs> Maybe. Now, Pete, at this point, obviously every year I give you a gift. Ah. Oh. I, know, I haven't got you one. Yeah, that's, you never that's give a me. tradition. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. a tradition. And obviously, we're thinking green, aren't we? Yeah. So you haven't uh, got me anything. Oh, no, of course not. <laughs> I've, bought, I've bought you, and I think I said about this the other day, um, some, oh, some gooseberry homemade jam. gooseberry jam. Oh, thank so you. what I've done there is I've reused the glass. Yeah. Okay, and I've obviously made it with natural... Gooseberries. Gooseberries. <laughs> Can I open it and smell it? I wouldn't. Oh, you're going to have to start eating it then. Mm, that smells it. nice. Yeah. Well, ho- hopefully you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> what do we think the key issues will be in economics over the next year, Pete? Well, I did have a think about this. and This I'll... is our challenge, isn't it, to the Economist magazine? Where they yeah, yeah. yeah. The, but the I think year. it's quite... I, I think I'll, oh, I've got to sound, say some quite serious points here. Right, so, I'll, so I will, but you can shoot me down. That's fine. <laughs> So, obviously, this year we've suffered from some supply chain issues. Yeah. I think they're going to continue, right. which might be stating the bloody obvious, but there we are. Yeah. Uh, I think there'll be more pressure, and I hope this is true, on governments to keep to and improve upon their climate change commitments. Mm. There's a couple of elections which I think will have an interesting impact on the direction of 
the UK economy in that there's going to be a French election that could change the direction of our nearest neighbour. Right. But also there's going to be midterms in America. Yeah, so right, I'd be interested okay. to see what impact they have yep. on sort of American policies. Apparently inflation's expected to peak in about March, about 5%, which is extraordinary, isn't it? Much higher than it's been for yep. many years. So potentially interest rates are going to have to rise. What I think will be interesting as well, there's two sort of major sectors of the economy, which I'm going to continue to watch quite carefully over the next year. Fossil fuel companies, obviously they're under an enormous amount of pressure yep. to adapt um, to you know the changing world, if you like, but also big tech. So it'll be interesting to just see the relationship between both those companies and both the population at large and governments. Mm. There's almost a tri- you know, a triangular relationship there between fossil fuel companies, tech companies, governments, which to a certain extent have been very cosy yeah. with both those sort of uh, vested interests. And wherever you know, pressure from the public will, will cause both the government and the, the companies themselves to change their yeah. behaviours. So, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the key is going to be over the next year? You did mention coronavirus there. I didn't know. I think it's just going to sort of fade away. Do you? I, I mean, the thing I is, do, yeah. is that I was on uh, Twitter today, as I am most of the time, and there's this apparently, I mean, this is all the classic stuff, isn't it? You get worried about new strands, and apparently there's a new <laughs> strand coming out of South Africa, which again then makes, like, the, the vaccines, you know, um, pretty useless. Uh, that's, what that's one of the things. And you, again, you're like, oh, my word. You know, and so you do think about that. I mean, again, a bit with you, really, it's pretty negative stuff, isn't it? It's just thinking about the global inequality. And, uh, you know, you can't deal with this issue globally if the poorer countries are just not getting access to yeah. those vaccines. So if you see how that kind of pans out, especially, yeah. you know, clearly with this opportunity cost between us having booster jabs yeah. versus, you know, basically developed countries not having any jabs at all. Yeah. Um, so it's that's interesting kind of... though, because I was actually chatting to my class about sort of the impacts of coronavirus on sub-Saharan Africa. And it's fascinating because you'd expect it to have a sort of terrible, terrible impact. And yet it hasn't. Mm. And I suppose you're looking at a younger demographic there, probably. But also, on a less sort of patronising note, some sort of people have argued they're much better at dealing with sort of epidemics because they're much more prevalent there. So possibly they've sort of just been able to adapt. Apart, you know, possibly South Africa being the exception to that. Or or maybe they are being decimated and we're just not getting the data. Well, possibly. I mean, that that's the thing, isn't but it? But again, we, we to a certain know. extent, perhaps that's a little bit patronising, yeah. you know, the assumption that, you know, they can't gather data and they don't really know what's going yeah. on. But um, but it is interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it may well be there's genetic elements to um, sort of the impact of coronavirus, which we don't yet fully understand. Yes. But certainly yeah. there's probably demographic sort of factors yeah. that uh, perhaps favour some parts of the world over others. If you go right back to the start of the coronavirus epidemic as it impacted on Europe and you look at Italy, you know, which is the oldest population in Europe, yeah. you're not going to be dealing with the same issues there. No, no. You know, so. No. Well, well, certainly young people, know, yeah. Anyway. We, we try, we got to be, are we being, we're trying to be optimistic, but it's, oh, it's quite, it's, it is unfortunately at this moment in time in our collective existence 
potentially quite difficult to do that. I, I, I don't I've, think it is. I don't think it is. Really? No, I don't think it's any more difficult to be optimistic now than it would be right. in lots of other points in sort of world history. Yeah. In fact, if you take a long view, yeah. we're in a far better place. Classic factfulness book by Hans Rosling. Yeah, I was Tell actually going to... Yeah. I'm sure I, I was due to mention that at some oh, point. Yes, yeah. we'll, we'll save it. Um, and the other thing is, is like you mentioned, uh, inflation. Now, I'm currently reading Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth. Yeah. This is about modern monetary and Do theory. you understand it? Yeah, I mean, it's a very easy concept, it's con- uh, yeah, concept to understand. I, did, I tried reading it, I didn't understand it. I need to reread it. Oh, right. Well, I think she explains it really well in the book. I find it deceptively simple to the point where I thought, am I missing something? No, exactly. And I think that is it. It is deceptively simple, mm. um, you know, when you've got your own kind of sovereign currency. Mm. And so, and I think that's why a lot of maybe mainstream economists maybe kind of are disregarding it because it does seem to be maybe but she sets the case out absolutely superbly in the book but um one of our listeners andrew lay has already kind of said have have, me reading the book have i already missed the boat has monetary modern monetary theory kind of gone because of this rise in inflation right because that's what she argues you know inflation is the break yeah inflation basically is telling us whether you're spending too much money or not and so with inflation of five percent potentially you know or in america six point whatever it is you know it would suggest then that you are spending too much but the big argument in i think economics at the moment is what is causing that inflation you know and, and that's the thing at the moment with the bank of england you know, yeah. saying, "Oh, we're going to keep. We're going to rise. Interest rates are going to go up." And you would assume, again, yet again, next year, interest rates would start to climb. But people have been saying that for about the last yeah. ten years. So you know, and you kind of think, "Well, what what lies ahead? And is it cost push inflation? Because then ultimately, the interest rate might not have any impact. Where is the demand pull pressure? It doesn't mm. seem as if that's going to happen in the future. I mean, be worried about." wages increasing but the latest data on that has been pretty minimal and the economic growth doesn't seem to be booming oh, I think as much it's really interesting you know so that's a fascinating debate that's going to happen in the future yeah. do you think the queen will be alive this time next year pete of course she will that's the answer i was hoping for <laughs> <laughs> okay looking further into the distance what do you think christmas will look like in 2050 well, is this going to be a depressing end to our Christmas special, Pete? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because firstly, it could be slightly depressing for us, at least, in that I was thinking, God, we'll be really old then. Yeah. We'll be 80. Yeah, I don't want to think about it. We'll be about 80. Yeah. But anyway, the, what I, I mentioned Hans Rosling's book, Fatfulness, or you mentioned it rather. And I think we need to remember that in that, if you go back the previous 50 years to today... There's actually been enormous progress in a number of metrics. If you think about things like life expectancy um, um, or if you think about education, the volumes of people being educated as compared with 50 years ago. For the most part, if you look globally, there's been a huge improvement in sort of many of the things that... And I don't think that's talked about enough. I suppose the big... And this is in his book as well, the big exception to that is the climate, you know, and will it be significantly hotter and not in a good way Mm. uh, by 2050? And I suppose this is, you know, if if we wanted to sort of, I'm not saying we're going to end right now, but one message for the new year is 
we can all do something about that. You know, there are sort of changes we can all make in our lives to ensure that 2050 isn't as depressing as it possibly start, could be. Starting this Christmas. Yeah, yeah. But certainly, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of old school with this. I do set New Year's resolutions every year and I really do try and keep to, keep to them. Yeah. And I'm sure there will be a number connected to my own personal carbon footprint. Because let's face it, we do have around the world a number of governments who I personally think are burying their head in the sand to a yeah. certain extent. But what I'm heartened by is that individually, I think a lot of people are responding to this whole challenge of climate change, as are a lot of leaders of cities. So in a, in a sense, if you think about countries, they're a collection of cities and individuals. Yeah. And of all of those cities and individuals are doing their bit, in a sense, you can have some sort of waffly, idiotic, sort of populist leader, yeah. and it won't quite matter as much. Yeah. And I think also some of the more serious people in sort of science, technology, you know, and so on, they are, you know, increasingly sort of urgently looking at solutions to sort of climate issues. So I'm not saying we can sidestep governments. So governments obviously are yeah. very important, but we cannot underestimate the power of the individual. So yeah, I think, I think that's, that's something really that positive. we kind of mentioned in a in a kind of um, Schumacher thing about, again, if you go and have a read of a lot of what's going on at local community level, and I spoke at the time about New Local, uh, which is this organisation that is like shows basically what, you know, is going on in these communities. There's so much progressiveness going yeah. on with regards you know climate but also inequality yeah. and things like that and so there is this kind of optimism for the future but at a local level when on a national level you see you know Bolsonaro whatever he's called Bolsonaro you know, yeah. yeah you know and, and others kind of just thinking yeah. you're signing things and then behind our backs you know you're still burning down the rainforest even though you've yeah. signed up to not do it or you know we're going to reduce oil in this country and then Boris signs something to do with what is it the Cambo fields or whatever yeah. you know so you kind of got all this kind of stuff but yeah. at a local level we can be really optimistic and positive Ooh. can't we Pete I think we have to be yeah I think otherwise you just become very depressed yeah but anyway I think we should just be about around 2050 yeah I think yeah we will be aged uh once we get to 2080 or 2000 Perhaps our consciousness will be conveyed into the cloud. Wow. Or we will simply live on through our podcasts. Have you thought about that? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really. I, I mean, I feel sorry for our listeners thinking about that. So uh, there, there you go. Um, there we are. I assume I would have to buy some scuba diving stuff as well. Because? Just be underwater, wouldn't we? Oh, you think about Waterworld? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think mine. I don't think I'd adapt quickly enough with gills. Gills, no. Yeah. No. So there you go. I've always thought your feet might be webbed. <laughs> Which right. is uh, uh, one of the core parts of uh, of a book that we always recommend at this time of year. The Strange School by Gavin Simpson, which you can find on uh, Amazon. <laughs> I was going to say all good booksellers, but it is literally... Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Pete. What a lovely uh, vision of the future. Yeah. Now, that gives me time, I think, to deliver one more poem. Uh, which you're absolutely delighted about Uh, this was my response to my colleague saying you've got to produce a more upbeat poem well great after saying that I should burn the other one yeah the other one was pretty miserable yeah Yeah. 
Come on then. This is called This Time Last Year. Go on. This time last year, Christmas was found in the boot of a car with services via Zoom on the Bethlehem Star. This time last year, we missed the games and the fun, plus Granny getting drunk on the Christmas run. This time last year, it was all about bubbles, but not the right ones. We couldn't sing along with the German nuns. This time last year, it was cancelled last minute by a man we now know as a hypocrite. This year is different. We're getting together, whatever they say, whatever the weather. We're going to get drunk. We're going to play. We're going to have the best time on Christmas Day. We're going to eat till we all go pop. We're going to laugh until we all flop. This time last year, it was doom and gloom. But this Christmas time, let's boom, shake the room. Yeah. Yeah. What a lovely poem. Okay, there you go. Right. We'd like to uh, wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone. Have a great Christmas. Yeah, and a Happy New Year. And a very Happy New Year. And uh, as always, uh, thank you for listening. And we'd like to thank Nick for all the help with the podcast. We really do appreciate it. You know, whenever we spend time with Nick at the moment, we realise how under pressure he is. Yeah. You know, with his three kids. And, you know, uh, so to find some time to uh, edit these babies... Uh, <laughs> yeah. oh, much love to Nick. Yeah, much love okay. To Nick. And 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 exciting for the new year potentially. We've got a new website. Yeah. Uh, coming out where you can find uh, book lists, poems, a bit of merch yeah. potentially. Yeah. You know, this time next year you could be sending out a, a, an economic thing ten Christmas card. Yeah. Watch this space. Yeah. Watch so this space. Uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, so thank you very much. Merry Christmas. Yeah everyone and do get in touch with us we'd love to hear from you via instagram wish us a merry christmas wish us a merry christmas uh and And leave the gift of a nice review nice review on itunes (laughs) and do contact us it's economicsinten at gmail.com and one last time merry christmas christmas